right. All right, we're going to get started here. This is a Wednesday evening Bible study. Tonight we're in Joshua, the 10th chapter, and the 10th chapter is basically split up into three different sections. The first section ends with the sun standing still, the prayer for that to happen. Uh, God gave them victory over the five uh, kings, the uh, nations, the Amorites. And then the second part, verses uh, 16 through 28, the five Amorite kings are executed. And then the end of this chapter is the conquest of the southern part of Canaan. So, you know, they're continuing their conquest. Remember, that's what the book of Joshua is about. It's about Israel coming into the promised land and conquesting it. Uh, defeating the nations uh, and taking possession of the land that God had already given them. So this chapter ends with them uh, capturing uh, different cities in the southern part of the promised land. That's where this chapter ends. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the blessing of being able to preach and teach your word. Lord, help me tonight to teach well your word, to rightly divide it. Fill me with your spirit to teach this text well, Lord. And Lord, send your spirit to illuminate the truths that we will hear tonight. Reveal your truth to us, Lord. May we behold you in even greater glory as we read this passage and behold our Savior, Jesus Christ, who conquers our enemies for us. In his name we pray, amen. So again, we're going to take this chapter in sections. Uh, the first main section is verses 1 through 15. So let's see what the word of the Lord says here. I'm reading from the uh, ESV translation. It says, As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted to his destruction, and doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho, and its king and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all his men were warriors so this king had heard about the fame of the Lord and how his people had defeated these nations not only was it uh, of these cities rather not only was it Ai but also Jericho and Jericho was a was a big city so and also Gibeon the fact that they defeated Gibeon because it says Gibeon was a great city so this king feared Israel so it says in verse 3 so Adonai uh, Adonai rather Zadok king of Jerusalem sent to Hoham king of Hebron and Piram king of Jarmuth and Japhia king of Lachish and Debir king of Eglon saying come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. So he gets all these people together, all these kings and their armies, 
to come up against Gibeon. And why is he going up against Gibeon? Because Gibeon, as we read in the last chapter, had made an alliance with Israel and had become with Israel. So these Canaanites, these pagans, began to worship the God of Israel. And this king and the other five kings didn't like it. So this king of Jerusalem found five other kings <laughs> to go along with them. So uh, I guess they all had a common enemy, and that was uh, the Gibeonites. And something to notice here, this was, you see the king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this time was not the holy city of God. Jerusalem was just a city in Canaan that Israel was to conquer. Now, once Israel conquered Jerusalem, then Jerusalem was going to become the city where the temple would be built. But up until this time, Jerusalem was not conquered yet. Jerusalem was not in the hands of Israel. So this shows you how God changed that city from a city that was ruled by pagans to a city that was ruled by his people, particularly uh, King David and King Solomon and all the other kings of Judah. So at this time, Jerusalem wasn't there just yet. So here at verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal. Now Gilgal was like the headquarters of Israel at this point. This is where they gathered, they retreated to, and then they spread out from there. And I think next week I'm going to try to have a map up on the screen so we can kind of see how the promised land is laid out. But Gilgal was like their their central headquarters. So continuing here in verse 7, Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So here is the Lord again encouraging Joshua. Do not fear. This is a very common theme in this book. We read that all the way back in the first chapter when God told him to be strong and to be of good courage. You know, do not fear. And that is what God tells us when we face our spiritual enemies who are the world, flesh, and the devil. When we face the enemies in this world, those who hate Christ and hate the cause of Christ, what does God tell us? Do not fear. I think do not fear, do not be afraid is one of the most frequent commands in all of Scripture. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Why? Because God is with us. God already gave us the victory. We as believers are not to fear sin. Why? Because Christ already has victory over sin. Christ defeated sin for us. Christ defeated the power and the, and the um, slavery that sin brings. Christ defeated that. So we don't have to fear sin. We don't have to fear man. What can man do to us? Nothing. Man cannot ultimately harm us. Yes, man will rise up against us. Man will try to do things to us. Man will say things about us. But the great thing that we have to learn is we are not to fear man. Jesus told his disciples as much in Matthew, the 10th chapter. Do not fear him who is able to destroy the soul, the body, but not the soul. But fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. We ought to fear God more than we fear man. 
And we fear God as a worshipful fear. It's not a fear like we're scared of God, like God is going to hurt us and we have to go in the corner and get in the fetal position and, and put our little thumb in our mouth because we're so scared of God. No, we fear God in a reverential way. Why? Because he's God. He's the Lord. He's creator. We're not to fear man like that. We are to not fear man. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that the fear of man is a snare. It is a trap. It is bondage to have fear of man. So God tells them, do not fear them. Again, in verse eight, for I have given them into your hands. God is so encouraging to his people. God tells us, do not fear. This was a command. This wasn't a suggestion. It was a command. Though Joshua had reason to fear because Israel was facing an army with five kings. So he had reason to fear. The circumstances didn't look good. Sometimes when we're facing the battles in this life, man, they look formidable. Our enemies, they look like they're just raging all around us. Our circumstances look like they just, they're just going to take us down. But what does God say? Do not fear. And when you don't fear God, you trust in him. You trust in his goodness. You trust in who he is. You trust in his sovereignty. You trust in his power to deliver and his power to save, his power to redeem those who are lost. It may seem that someone's life is impossible for God to redeem, but no, it's not. There's nothing too hard for God. So we have nothing to fear. Nothing. These five kings, but God commanded him not to fear his enemies. And again, why? Because I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So this command was joined with the promise. Don't fear. Why? I've delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. That is a promise. So Joshua could obey God's command to not fear because God had the promise of victory. <laughs> now, what can fear do? Fear can take away our ability to fight God's battles. It can take away that. Even in the face of these strong enemies, Joshua had the command from God to not fear. And we have to be willing to believe what God promised. Just as Joshua did, we have to believe. When God says he's with us, guess what? He's with us. When he says he would never leave us, guess what? He would never leave us. That's a command with the promise. Why, why should we not fear? Because we know our God is with us. We know Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and the call according to his purpose. God would do it for his glory and for our good, our ultimate good. So that's why we don't fear. And that's why Joshua didn't fear. And what did Joshua do? He responded in faith in verse 9. So Joshua came up upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into panic before Israel. So the Lord did this. Remember, the Lord's going to fight the battles for them. Now, from what I read, a commentator said that this was a hard march from Gilgal. It says the march from Gilgal to Gibeon 
involved climbing about 3,000 feet over a distance of about 20 miles. So about 8 to 10 hours of marching. So it's like going from here to Mount Chiha. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, a ascent, but it's a, it's a slow, but it's a steady ascent. You're going up a mountain, 20 miles, 3,000 feet. So you're talking about 8 to 10 hours. But God does his work. But the great thing about God, though he's in heaven, he does regard us in his work. God does his work, but he does draw us into working with him. So Joshua came upon them suddenly. He marched into the night. God said that he was going to give them the victory, but he allowed man to participate. God wants to draw people into partnership with him and seeing his work done. God uses us to accomplish his work in this world. And that's what he did with Joshua. So the Lord threw them into a panic who struck them with the great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. That's verse 10. Verse 11, as they fled before Israel, when they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, so they were going down, the Lord threw down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. So the Lord has sent, this was a miracle. God rained hailstones from heaven that killed them. This was the hand of God. This is God showing his power over creation. This was a miracle. God rained hailstones down from heaven and instruct them. It says, I continue verse 11. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So this was the, the divine warrior, God himself punishing his enemies. God is the God of all creation and God can use creation to destroy his enemies. However, he sees fit. When the Bible says, Psalm 24 and 1, the earth is the Lord's and the food is thereof, the world and they who dwell therein. God, the earth belongs to God. God can make the earth do whatever it wants. God can make the, the clouds and the sky do whatever he wants. Why? Because he made it. So he caused these hailstones to rain down in a miraculous way from heaven. Isn't that something? God is so awesome. So awesome. And there were more who died. So God's miraculous work was much more greater than Israel's work. So God did something else miraculous here in verses 12 through 15. He extended the day to maximize Israel's victory. So verse 12. Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel. So he spoke this in front of everyone so that they could see and hear. Sun stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Aijalon. Aijalon rather. 
So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon the enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like it before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So, after seeing God rain ha hailstones from heaven, Joshua <laughs> obviously had some courageous faith. So he prayed a bold prayer to God to keep the day going, to keep the sun from setting so that Israel had time to accomplish a complete victory before darkness fell. The reason why, as I said, said last week and in previous uh, messages, they didn't have lights like we do now. When it was dark there, it was dark. The only thing they had were their torches or whatever to, to, to keep everything lit. You couldn't see like that. So that's why they worked during the day. They worked basically from sunup to sundown because they could not see at night. You can do anything at night. So the same thing in war. When they had wars and battles, they had to fight during the day. They couldn't continue at night. So this is why he prayed that. To keep the day going, to keep the sun from setting. This is something. So the sun and the moon, this is another thing about the sun and the moon. One commentator said the sun and the moon had long stood as silent witnesses to the sin, wickedness, and demonic religions of the Canaanites. Because the Canaanites worshipped the sun. They worshipped the moon. They had sun gods. They had moon gods. You have people now who worship the sun. And they worship the moon. But under the command of God, they helped Joshua complete this victory over the Canaanites. God was showing these pagans that he was in control of the sun and the moon, not them. And he shows the pagans now who worship the sun and the moon that he is the one who's in control over it. You have people now who are trying to control the weather because they're saying it's, it's hot. It's hotter than it's ever been. No, it hasn't been. But you have people now, atheists, who hate God, trying to control the temperature, trying to control the, the sun, saying we need to get rid of certain things in order to control the temperature, to control the climate. That's paganism. Man can't do that. Man does not have the power to change nature like that. Only the God of nature does, and that's the God above, the creator of heaven and earth. He is the only one who can change anything dealing with his creation. So he prayed and the sun stood still again in the midst of heaven. And it was up for one day. He answered Joshua's bold prayer. And the Lord fought for Israel. So the whole day, and we don't know how this happened. We don't know if the earth's rotation stopped. It could have been a slowing of the rotation of the earth. It could have been the tilting of the axis. It could have been a miracle reflection of light. 
but we don't know. We just know that it was done. <laughs> we knew that God made the sun stand still. That's all we know. And Israel was able to complete their victory. We can only speculate. But we know that it happened. We believe what the Bible says. And it's still still to the people have revenge upon their enemies. And that's what happened. God miraculously gave him an opportunity to, 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 to fight. And he fought. Now, one thing this brings to mind is we should not be afraid to pray bold prayers to God. Just as Joshua was not afraid to pray this bold prayer. Now, you know, we can ask God to make the sun stand still, but I don't think that's going to happen because the Bible says here that he never obeyed a man like that again. Where the Lord heeded the voice of a man like that again. So, yeah, we, we can't pray that the sun stands still, but we can still pray bold prayers for God. We can pray more courageous prayers to God about people. We can pray that family members that they just look all lost and beyond hope. Lord, save them. Lord, you're mighty to save. You're mighty to save my family member who, who hates you, who hates your church, who hates your name, who don't, who don't want to hear your name. Lord, save them. We could pray, pray those bold prayers that, that we don't think God will answer. If God in his sovereignty answers, praise the Lord. If he doesn't answer in the affirmative, praise the Lord still. That shouldn't stop us from praying bold prayers to God. We pray, as uh, the, the reformer Martin Luther said, pray and let God worry. <laughs> Bob gave me a little prayer booklet that, that says that uh, on the front, a quote from Martin Luther, the great reformer, pray and let God worry. Just pray. Amen. Just pray. Pray to God. Trust God. Amen, Dolores. That's right. That's right. He may not answer, but we still keep praying. Amen. And we can pray for a few other things. We pray that God be glorified in everything, that God will be obeyed, that God would, uh, his work would be continued in this world without hindrance. We can also pray that God's people would, would triumph over our enemies. Those are bold prayers that we can pray. And we can learn that from looking at Joshua praying that. So now after this, he returned back to Gilgal again, back to central headquarters. And so they're about to get ready to um, kill these five kings. So these five kings fled, verse 16, and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, Joshua told them to roll stones against the mouth of the cave. And they pursued the enemies. Looking at verse 19, attack the rear part of the enemy. Do not let them enter into their cities, for the Lord your God has given them to your hands. So they went on to defeat these five cities of these kings. And then verse 22, Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave. And what did he do? He brought those kings out. 
In verse 24, he summoned all the men of Israel. I'm kind of summarizing this part. He brought the men of Israel and said to the chiefs, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came there and put their feet on their necks. Verse 25, Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. There we go again. Man, don't be afraid of them. Don't be dismayed. You have nothing to worry about. You have nothing to fear. So the king of Jerusalem was one of them. So it says here, these are the names of the kings. Again, I'm going back here. Verse 23, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So these were the kings. Now, this will be the end of his reign and the end of his life. The name Jerusalem means, uh, I mean, um, Adani Zedek means the Lord of Righteousness. But he was a pagan king of, his, of, of Jerusalem. He fought against Joshua. He uh, resisted God's occupation of the land. And guess what? He paid for it. He was a false messiah. He was a false messiah. But he told the men to put their foot on their necks. And afterwards it says Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. He executed them himself. But he put them on five trees so that this defeat could be seen. And they were hanged alive, basically. So they were hanged. And they were seen. They were they hanged all day. So they were made an example of. So after those kings were defeated, that took care of that. So now we get down to the conquest. So this is the end of the, the chapter where the conquest of the south part of the promised land again. I'm going to try to have a map on the screen next week so we can look at how the land looked. So we're going to look at the conquest of the southern part now. So verse 28 says, As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. That was utter destruction. And he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho so again utterly destroy your enemies that's what Israel was commanded to do when they came to this land they were to utterly destroy their enemies don't leave any destroy all the people conquer all the land and then Libna he passed through Makeda and all Israel with him to Libna. They fought against Libna and the Lord delivered it. He struck it and all the people. Verse 31 and 32, the fall of Lachish. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish. They encamped against it and fought against it and the Lord delivered Lachish. You see, and the Lord delivered. Back in verse 29, the Lord also delivered. 
verse 31, the Lord delivered. And then the city of Gezer, Horam king of Gezer came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people. And then the city of Eglon, verse 34 and 35. From Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon. Israel with them, and they encamped against it and fought against it. They took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. All the people who were in it were utterly destroyed. Verse 36-37. Joshua went up from Eglon, and all Israel with them to Hebron. They fought against it, and they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword. Its king and all the cities and all the people who were in it. He left none remaining. And then the city of Debir. Verse 30-39. Joshua returned and all Israel with him to, De, uh, to Debir. And they fought against it. And he took it and its king and all its cities. Struck them with the edge of the sword. Utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining. That was a common thing. He left none remaining. He left none remaining. So Joshua conquered all land. The mountain country in the south. And the lowland and the wilderness slopes. And all their kings. He left none remaining. But utterly destroyed all that breathed. As the Lord God of Israel had commanded. Okay. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all the kings in their land at one time because Lord of Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Amen. If you look at Deuteronomy 20, go back to Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and 17. Look at what God says. Deuteronomy 20 beginning at verse 16 is the ESV but in, this, in, those, in the cities of the peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance you shall save alive nothing that breathes but you shall devote them to complete destruction the Hittites and Amorites the Canaanites and the Perizzites the Hivites and the Jebusites as the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all the abominable practices that they have done for their gods and so sin against the Lord your God. Now, back to this passage. Verse 40 again. The middle of it. Joshua 10 and 40. He left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that were breathed just as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. So what, what was Joshua doing? He was being obedient to the Lord. When you don't fear God, you obey God. I'm sorry. Yes. When you fear God, you obey God. When you fear man, you don't obey God. That's why God told him, do not be afraid. You're, you're on the Lord's side. The Lord is on your side. Don't be afraid. And what are you going to do? You're going to obey God. 
You're going to do all that God tells you to do. Why? Because you fear him. Because you worship him. Because you love him. When you fear God, when you know he's on your side, you're going to obey him. And that's what Joshua did. Each one of those cities, you see, he left none. He left none. He left none. He left none. He utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God had commanded him. All the kings were destroyed. And all this happened because it says here, the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Down here in verse 42, 43. God told him to utterly destroy. And Joshua was among those people in Deuteronomy who heard that before they went to the promised land. He, he, he was one of the ones when Moses was leading them. He heard that command from God. So what did Joshua do? He remembered that. So he obeyed the Lord fully. So he defeated six cities without a single lost battle. It was a lot of war. But guess what? God fought with them. He fought for Israel. The most important factor was that God fought for them. And this illustrates the key aspect in our battle against our own spiritual enemies. We can only win as we see the Lord fighting on our behalf. God provides the victory and what do we do? We walk in it. Paul said, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus. That's how we're able to not be slaves to sin. Why? Because Christ has already given us the victory. So we can walk in that victory. And what we kind of realize is that the victory was won at the cross. And now we need to live in light of that victory. Paul says in uh, Colossians 2 and 15. He says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he, Christ, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That means in the cross. Christ triumphed over his enemies, the principalities and the powers of this world, the, the demonic forces. Christ triumphed over them at the cross. The enemies of Christ thought that they got him at the cross. They thought that they put an end to him. That's why they crucified him. But guess what? He rose. God rose him from the dead on the third day. Defeating death. Defeating the power of death. Defeating the sting of death. Oh death, where's your victory? Oh grave, where's your victory? Oh death, where's your sting? Christ took away the sting of death when he rose from the dead. That's why the cross is so important. So Christ defeated our enemies at the cross. He made a spectacle of them. That's why the Bible says in Romans 8 and 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we trust in God to give us the victory, just as Joshua did. He obeyed God. When you obey God, when we obey God, we're showing God that we trust in him. Lord, we trust that when we obey you, we'll be blessed. You will bless us when we obey you. That's what we do. We're showing God. Lord, I trust you. I'm going to obey you. 
Joshua did exactly what the Lord said. He completely defeated all them and didn't leave any people because these were pagans. God did not want these pagans to be able to influence them. When you go into that land, kill them all. Because if not, you're going to practice, you're going to do their practices. And we're going to see later on where they don't do it and what's going to happen as a result. So it says here at the end, Joshua returned and all of Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Remember, Gilgal was a place where they had fellowship with God, where they met their headquarters. And this was a place of faith, of fellowship with God. That's where Gilgal was until Jerusalem became the capital. This is where they met. So we see in all this, again, the theme, God is with us. Do not fear. We see also the theme that Christ is victorious over our enemies, our spiritual enemies, our physical enemies, enemies in the flesh. But also the three enemies that we face as believers, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the systems of the world, the ideologies of the world. Christ has defeated those. His wisdom has defeated the wisdom of this world. His love has defeated the false love of this world. His power has defeated the fake power that this world tries to tell you that you have and that you can attain. His saving us, his choosing us, defeats the false identities that this world tries to tell us that we need to have. Christ has defeated those enemies. The enemy of self, he's defeated that. Any man who comes after me must first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why? Because Christ wants all of us. We can't worship self and trust God. We can't worship self and obey God. Christ has defeated our enemies, people. He's defeated them. They're conquered. The enemy of sin is conquered. The enemy of fear is conquered. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have fearful circumstances. Not, it doesn't mean that we're not going to have fearful situations. You go to the doctor and you get a bad report. You get a biopsy and they say we got to take you in for further tests because we saw some things. Yes, that's going to bring natural fear. It's not that fear itself is a sin. It's dwelling in fear. It's letting fear turn to worry. It's being paralyzed with fear. That's where it becomes a sin because it can lead to unbelief. It can lead to doubting God. We will have fearful circumstances. We will hear fearful news. But we're not to be gripped by fear. We're not to be, again, paralyzed by fear. We're not to be paralyzed by the fear of man. We're not to be so worried and so consumed with what people are thinking of us or what people are thinking about us or what people are saying about us. Some people are so paralyzed by that that they become people pleasers. And that doesn't mean that we have have a license to go around and be jerks. (laughs) That's not what that means. But what it does mean is that we don't go around so consumed with other people and what they think of us. We should be more consumed about how our God sees us. And for believers, he sees us as the righteousness of Christ. He sees us as one of his children. He sees us as his beloved child. He sees us as his sheep and he's our shepherd. 
when we truly live and walk in how God sees us, we won't fear anything. We won't fear man at all. And Joshua was an example of that in this chapter. He feared God so much that he obeyed him. God was with him. God was with Israel. And God will be with us. Amen.